Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Thank you so much for being here, whether you're in the room or listening distantly. Um, we're so happy you're here. We do have a program next Wednesday, The World in Which God Placed Humans. Um, that, that if you're cooking for Thanksgiving, if that's something you do, you might not be free. Um, or maybe you are free specifically for that. We hope you'll join us for that. And um, Letty Pogrebin coming in person and virtually uh, in just a few weeks as well. So much happening, but the, our focus now is on today, the other oven in the Talmud. How a halachic discussion sparked a great soul with a teacher that I greatly admire. Um, an author I, I greatly admire and who many of you know as well. And I was given just a, um, a stunningly short bio, a stunningly modest bio for someone with such accomplishments. Um, we are pleased today to partner with Rodef Shalom in Denver, um, our wonderful partner congregation in Denver. Um, terrific to be with them. And we are here today with Rabbi Michael Marmer, who is Associate Professor of Jewish Theology at the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem, where he is today in Yerushalayim. He has published works on Abraham Joshua Heschel and American Jewish thought, and is the chair of the Board of Rabbis for Human Rights, a group that I've uh, been privileged to participate with and is doing wonderful work. And we are thrilled to learn Torah with him today. As usual, he's going to kind of present some sources and ideas, and then um, there may be some back and forth, and then we'll have the chance for kind of a, a larger back and forth towards the last 15, 20 minutes. So Rabbi Marmer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, it is a great, a great pleasure to be with all of you. There are some familiar faces on the screen and um, um, it, it's good to be with all of you. Actually, since that bio was written, I'm pleased to say I am now the former chair of the board. I'm still on the board of Rabbis for Human Rights, but I'm delighted to say that I was able to uh, pass on that uh, that on honor onerous honor onto somebody uh, onto somebody else. Um, I called this session the other oven. I should explain to you what I'm talking about. Usually, when uh, in Beit Midrash circles an oven gets discussed, it is the oven Tanuroshel uh, Achnai Achnai oven uh, a set induction Talmudic discussion from Tractate Baba Matsya, which is about, when you read that, that fantastic discussion, it is about the question, where do we draw our evidence from? Is it from natural or supernatural sources? It's a debate about authority, who gets to decide what is and is not law. And it is, uh, if you've ever uh, uh, studied the, um, the, the, uh, the debate about the Achnai Oven, you were once studied, never forgotten. Um, and I called the session the other oven because there is another oven-related Talmudic dispute or debate, which nobody ever much thinks about, which did become uh, a spark. It provided a spark for one of the great souls of contemporary or modern Judaism, namely Abraham Joshua Heschel. And I'll tell you how that played out. What we're gonna do um, is first of all, 
look at a couple of lines from a sugya, from a Talmudic discussion, um, um, which sort of will set this up for us, um, is from Tractate Shabbat, near the beginning of the Tractate. Then we're going to fast forward um, almost 2,000 years or 15, 1,600 years and see how this debate or this discourse figured in the imagination of a young, very young Abraham Joshua Heschel before anybody had ever heard of him or knew who he was. And then we'll follow that through line into his mature life and see how the question at hand um, stayed with him throughout his career. So that's the plan for the next few minutes. And I'll try to make sure to stop in time for us to have um, questions or comments. I would only ask, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going, but if something I've said is particularly impenetrable or impossible to understand, don't stand on ceremony. Put up um, a physical hand, a virtual hand, jump up and down, do something and let me know if it needs to be explained, okay? So let me uh, share my screen and we are going to go to the first, the first act of our drama. So we're somewhere, let's say in the fourth century of the common era, we're in, uh, um, this debate is taking place in, uh, um, in Babylon, in Babylonia and um, We'll try to unpack the text as best we can. Um, I'll make it slightly uh, larger if only for myself. Um, so a man called Bavai or Bibi Barabaye raises a dilemma. If it were easy to understand what this dilemma was, um, the Talmud would be a different work. This is actually quite a difficult um situation to understand. And as you'll see, it's open to ver various kinds of interpretation, but we'll try and give at least one way of understanding it. Hidbik pat batanur, hitiru lo lirdota kodem sheyavo lidei chiyuv chatat, o lo If you have a situation in which most probably just on the blurry time on a Friday between pre-Shabbat and Shabbat itself, some dough has been put in a hot oven and it's in the process of turning into bread. The question that's being asked is, is it possible to do an act known as Ridiyatapat, which apparently means scraping the dough from the walls of the oven, or is it not permitted to do? Now, this needs to be teased out a little bit before we go any further. What on earth might we be talking about? You are not allowed to bake uh, uh, on Shabbat. It's one of the big no-nos. But apparently, it's not only in fashionable restaurants of these days, People did have a particular affection for hot from the oven, oven fresh, toasty warm, uh, baked goods to be enjoyed on Shabbat. And it seems to be that we're having one of these discussions, this is very typical of the rabbinic imagination, of a liminal case when you're, you look like you might be on the verge of doing something you shouldn't. 
The ban against baking on Shabbat is a first order biblical, the rabbis consider it to be biblically enjoined no-no. Now the question is, there's another kind of action, the action of scraping the dough from the walls of the oven, which is not as explicit or as a, a main line, obvious, big time forbidden to do, but it is considered to be according to uh, 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 um, the rabbi's injunctions, something one ought not to do. And the question that seems to be at play here is, is it okay to perform an act which may expose you to a second order uh, um, um, thing you shouldn't do? I won't quite call it a sin, but a deed that should not be permitted. Is it okay to do that if by doing so, you avoid the risk of a big first order major league no-no taking place? Now, if I sound like I'm being a bit unclear or vague about this, it's not only because that's usually how I speak, but also because it's difficult to understand what exactly is the situation. And the Talmud now goes and rehearses various possibilities. Is it the case that I, Baker Michael, have decided late on Friday to put my pita in the oven, knowing that I shouldn't let it go too far, and then suddenly change my mind, of, of, uh, uh, decide that the act I embarked on was wrong, and that I go into the oven and scrape out the dough to save myself from a greater sin. Is that a plausible scenario? Or is it a scenario, a different scenario? I'm gonna take Rabbi Shmuley as my unwitting uh, uh, model here. I'm walking by, I like to be the hero of my own story. So I'm walking along one day and I happen to pass Shmuley's backyard, where of course he has a baking oven, as we well know. And I see him Friday afternoon, the clock is ticking, it's almost Shabbat. He's put some dough into the oven. The dough is turning into bread. Any second now, he's about to perform a major misdeed. In that situation, am I permitted to risk incurring a, um, you know, to, uh, 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 affecting a, a, a misdeed, doing something wrong, but by acting, I will stop Shmuley from doing something much worse. So it's unclear in the initial circumstances of our Talmudic debate, if, if, it, if the person who puts the bread in does so, perhaps they did so Bishogeg. Uh, they were not paying attention. They weren't thinking about the possibility. Or perhaps they did it in full consciousness. And it's not clear if the person scraping the dough from the side is that same individual or somebody else. What on earth has this got to do with anything? Now read on. Um, so we're back to the text, okay? Um, the initial dilemma is as, I've, is as I've given it, is it or is it not okay to do this act of radiatapat, which is forbidden, but at a lower order of being forbidden, so that the big bad thing doesn't take place? 
I'm skipping a few lines. There are one of the discussants in this sugya, Rav Shila, says, Leolam b'shogeg. Um, this is clearly referring to a situation in which the person who put the dough in did so unwittingly. Uleman hitiru, and who is allowed to get involved and scrape the dough from the side of the oven? Acherim, other people, the other. It's according to Rav Sheila, it's exactly the scenario that I suggested with Rabbi Shmuli and myself. He put the dough in, I've come to save him from himself. Right? You understand? That's according to, to, to Rav Sheila's opinion. Um, um, it, however, another opinion from, the, from Rav Sheshet um, uh, finds this implausible. And here you have a pretty famous and consequential Talmudic saying. It's just coming up. Rav Sheshet says that's a ridiculous scenario. It can't be the way you're saying it. And here's the reason. He asks as a rhetorical question. Is there a scenario in which you would say to a person, sin, or be exposed to the possibility for sin, so that your fellow human being be spared from, in this case, a worse sin? The what appears to be, what is usually or often read as a rhetorical question, could be interpreted this way. This Talmudic sage is saying, you are responsible to look after your own spiritual well-being and you should not do something which may endanger that well-being for the sake of somebody else who's been foolish or wasn't paying attention or has been willful or has some kind of uh, you know uh, self-destructive urge that is fundamentally their problem you could talk to them ahead of time. You could give them uh, an hour-long Zoom call about why they shouldn't do it. All of those things are fine. But you shouldn't actually get into the oven with your uh, and start scraping. Not, I think they weren't so worried about health and safety concerns. They were worried about the safety of your soul. You may end up performing an infraction, okay? It's less bad than baking the, the loaf itself, but the act of trying to save this big bad thing happening itself incurs within it the risk or possibility of sin. So according to that statement in the Talmud by Rav Shila, uh, excuse me, by Rav Sheshet, you would not say to someone, uh, sin so that uh, another person will benefit from your act. This is, as far as Rav Sheshit is concerned, a principle. Now we're fast forwarding to the second act of our drama. So far we've had a somewhat abstruse Talmudic debate, which seems to have at its root, what I would say is a not abstruse, but a very important fundamental philosophical question. What are the limits of my responsibility I can see that I've given Joan. Maybe you should order a pizza, Joan, while we're uh, while we're doing this. Um, just make sure it was baked in the appropriate way. Um, the um, the ph philosophical question that is at, at stake here, it seems to me, is what are the limits 
What are the boundaries of my responsibility towards the other, towards my neighbor, in trying to save that neighbor from, from uh, um, a mistake, a sin, an inappropriate act? How far am I committed? And we seem to have before us a Talmudic statement saying, you should do anything you can except expose yourself to spiritual risk, okay, in trying to uh, in trying to ensure that your neighbor is okay, but don't cross that line. Now, we so, it so happens, now we're moving to the 20th century, the early 20th century in Poland, and it so happens that we have a remarkable document. It is dated 1924, which is at, uh, since Heschel was born in 1907, we're, we're talking about the 17-year-old young man called Abraham Heschel. Um, and this document is not written by Heschel. It's written by a man called Feigenbaum, a rabbi who wrote Chuvot, Halachic Responsa. And he writes one about a young man called Abraham Heschel from Warsaw, with whom he got into a conversation. He describes him in beautiful uh, Hebrew as Gdol um, HaYichus, somebody who has great Yichus, great family connections, because Heschel, as you might know, was the heir of Hasidic, uh, a highly significant Hasidic dynasty, both on his father's side and on his mother's side. And Feigenbaum says, I met this bright young man and he asked me a couple of halachic questions. I'll give you, I'll tell you, this is not the subject of today, but I can't resist telling you what the one that I haven't brought to you is, because it's a brilliant question. It relates to Sukkot. And the question that the young Heschel asks this rabbi is as follows. If I have been asked to lead the congregation in the shaking of the Arba Minim, right? During the festival of Sukkot, the Lulav and the Etrog, that is shaken in a particular uh, way, including the recitation of Psalms from the Hallel, etc. But my problem is that I have it in mind for myself to shake a set of the Arba Minim, which is particularly fine and which has not yet been brought to the synagogue. I'm waiting for it to arrive. Is it permissible for me to fulfill my role as a communal, communal leader? and shake whilst I'm actually thinking about or holding myself back for a, uh, a particular set of the Arab Minim that have yet arrived. My flippant way of summarizing this question, for those of you who are followers, followers of popular music, is that he's really asking the question, if you can't be with the one you love, you love the one you're with, right? That's kind of the question that he's, uh, he's raising here. Heschel in that question, this is 17 year old kid. This is what is on his mind. He's asking in my view, a question about what does it mean to take a response, a position of responsibility in the community when what my personal needs are to fulfill myself religiously and spiritually may be somewhere different than what the particular needs of my community are at this moment. Now, here's the other question that he asked, and let me show it to you here uh, from the tshuva as we have it. Um, here we go, we're going back to the text. Um, 
We've come to the second act. We're in Warsaw, 1924. And Feigenbaum says, this young man, Heschel, asked me the following question. He, he quoted the Talmudic uh, 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 phrase or rhetorical question that we saw before. You don't say to a person sin so that another one, that another person will benefit. And he asked, does that apply in all cases? Does that apply even if the act of the person passing by the oven, as it were, would not only impact one individual, but would in impact the community as a whole? I find this kind of remarkable. Heschel, who's a 17-year-old Hasidic kid, okay, considered to be something of a uh, of an Ilui, an Ilui, a prodigy, uh, studying mainly with private tutors in Warsaw as he is. The question that he's seen fit to ask the rabbi is one about not my responsibility to save Rabbi Shmuley from making an unfortunate error with the dough in his oven, but what would happen if an act uh, uh, um, that, that you would perform, one of us would perform, would have the impact of benefiting the wider community as a whole, a plurality of people. What The question that's being asked then by the young uh, Heschel, building on the Talmudic discussion, is as, as I interpret it, is there a situation in which I should run the risk of doing something dangerous, doing something daring, doing something unorthodox, because I have a responsibility to a wider community. If my action could actually redeem in some way or, or improve in some way the condition of a wider group of people. So here you see a 17-year-old Abraham Joshua Heschel grappling with this question. Some of you may not know too much about who Heschel was, so let me give you in uh, uh, the 90-second version of what happened to that 17-year-old kid. Uh, a year or two after he asked that question, he got permission from his mother, his father had died earlier, and his uncle, and he leaves the uh, deeply uh, uh, Hasidic uh, uh, observant milieu in which he's living in a part of Warsaw in Poland and he gets permission to leave and go to Vilna, Vilnius in Lithuania to enroll in a high school so he can get himself a secular education to match his profound Jewish knowledge. He did have, um, he had, it helped that he had a remarkable memory but he had uh, uh, um, most of the great classic works of the Jewish tradition, including the Talmud, uh, it goes without saying the Bible and so forth, were, as far as we can tell, committed to his memory uh, at a young age. He knew a lot of stuff, but he was really curious about the stuff he didn't yet know. And he wanted to go off and learn mathematics and Latin and Greek and all the rest of it. And so he leaves as a young man. After that, he makes his way to Berlin, is in Berlin during the rise of the Nazis to power, 
comes out first to Poland and then via England, he makes his way to the United States. He's actually brought out by the Hebrew Union College, the institution that I have the privilege of working in. He lives, uh, he's in Cincinnati, Ohio at HUC during most of the years of the Second World War. In 45, he goes over to New York and becomes part of the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, writes a series of extremely significant theological works in the course of the 1950s. And then when the 60s come around, he becomes an iconic figure, um, combining great learning with a militant activism, a strident social activism, which puts him at the forefront of many of the biggest issues that were on the American agenda in the 1960s. He becomes a key partner of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who he meets at a conference in Chicago in 1963. Um, he actually, uh, um, as well as his involvement in the civil rights movement, is active in trying to persuade Dr. King to take a stance uh, uh, opposing US involvement in the Vietnam War. He's active in internal Jewish uh, questions such as, um, uh, uh, such as the, the, the nascent Soviet jury movement and other related questions. And he becomes um, one of the most significant and influential figures, not only within American Judaism, but in the Jewish Christian and wider uh, 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 interreligious dialogue and a number of different uh, fields and areas. And I want to suggest to you that the question that Heschel asked as a 17 year old boy is a question that stays with him throughout the course of his life. The question, just to reframe it, is this. Is it okay for me, for you, for any one of us, to risk doing something that may put us in harm's way, not particularly physically harm's way, but may we may pay a price, a spiritual, a religious price, um, uh, or maybe a social price, for doing such an act, if we have a chance of ameliorating, improving, making the situation better for the community that we're part of. Heschel adduces or it, it pulls out from an abstract halachic Talmudic discussion, a question of great significance and consequence in the America of his day. And I would suggest to you in the world we all we all inhabit today as well. To what degree do I stay within my circumscribed world where I know what the rules are and I know how to stay safe? And to what extent do I look beyond the little box? I speak to you as all of us, as I see you are all in our little boxes on the screen, but what does it mean to look beyond and to see what's going on in everybody else's world and to be prepared to take a risk in order to try to save the situation or improve the situation in some way. You could ask, of course, and some of we might get there in a minute when we do questions, you might say, well, isn't there some chutzpah involved? To go back to the situation at the beginning, I'm walking by and I see Shmuley doing whatever he's doing in the oven on a Friday afternoon. What business is it of mine? Surely I should just leave him to get on with his own devices, but no. In Heschel's reading of this case, the issue is if I can see 
an unfolding dynamic which is going to have a disastrous result, am I not required? Am I not uh, encouraged or, or, or commanded even to step in, even if the person I'm trying to help doesn't thank me much for it along the way? Now we get to the third act of our three-act drama. We were in Babylonia in the fourth century. We were with a 17-year-old pimply. I don't know that if he was pimply, actually. I'm making that. I don't know the state of his, uh, his dermatological condition. But 17-year-olds are always described as pimply. It's like a thing. Um, there's this kid who's asking a question based on his expertise in the Talmud. And now we come to the mature Heschel. And we see him still playing with some of these themes and ideas. Here, let me show you. He asks a question here in an essay he writes in 1960 about children and youth. Um, the basic issue is how young people can be brought up with a proper sense of responsibility in an affluent society. Yet how can we expect the young to be noble if we allow ourselves to tolerate the innoble? What kind of example do we give to our kids if what they see us doing is settling, is uh, becoming passive, is being indifferent or accepting of injustices taking place all around us. He's interested, he's uh, 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 swept up by this educational and moral question. There is a cry for justice which only man, only humanity, must answer. There is a need for acts of compassion that only man must satisfy. Together with adjustment to society, we must cultivate a sense for injustice, impatience with vulgarity, a capacity for moral indignation, a will to readjust society itself when it becomes complacent and corrupt. I, I should explain that Heschel was surrounded, this is 1960 in America, everybody's talking about how one should adjust. I always tell my students when we're studying Heschel, think about the show Mad Men, if you saw that at all. We're in post-war America, where everybody wants to have a new refrigerator and carpeting and all the rest of it. And everybody is very keen in the Jewish community to be able to be accepted by the wider, wasp society and Heschel doesn't is not convinced that adjustment to society is all that it's cracked up to be he said about the prophets of Israel they were the most maladjusted people and he also said about himself actually I'm the most maladjusted person I know being maladjusted to society is another way of saying you're prepared to take a prophetic stance and look at what's taking place within that society and make a noise when it's necessary to do so. Um, in the same year, he publishes The Prophets. It's an English version of a book he'd written back in Germany in the 1930s. And he writes here, this is one of his most famous Heschelisms. Above all, the prophets remind us of the moral state of a, of a people. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. If we admit that the individual is in some measure conditioned or affected by the spirit of society, an individual's crime discloses society's corruption. Now I think of the young Heschel learning the Talmudic 
discussion about what happens if you see something taking place uh, in the oven of your neighbor and you are uh, impelled to step forward and lean in, even if you might get a, get a little singed or burnt physically or spiritually along the way. Being pulled out of an oven comes to be a really significant image for Heschel, given the nature of his biography. He described himself using the biblical term, Ud Mutsal Me'esh, a brand plucked from the fire. This is how he saw himself as somebody who'd come out from, he leaves Poland just weeks before uh, the Germans invade, uh, invade that country. And he calls himself, I'm a, a brand plucked from the fire in which my people was burned to death. I'm a brand plucked from the fire of an altar of Satan on which millions of human lives were exterminated to evil's greater glory and on which so much else was consumed. So again, it's interesting, this is a very different context than the Talmudic discussion, but the idea of being uh, uh, um, plucked uh, uh, from the very uh, jaws of hell, being brought out, it's now not a piece of bread that's being taken out of the oven, it's, uh, uh, um, and he sees himself and millions of others of being on the verge of destruction within that oven, and some are privileged to be plucked. And he would, I think, argue, as I read Heschel's social activism in the 1960s, it's deeply in conversation with his uh, experiences uh, in Nazi Germany and thereafter, where he saw people adjusting to gross injustice, living with it, getting somehow being okay with it. And he was uh, determined that whenever he had an opportunity in his, so, in his um, social and political life, he would never settle he would never just allow for whatever society that happened to be perpetrated. Um, we're now in the final uh, home straight of the things that I wanted to present to you. And here um, there's something which for me at least was fun to discover. Uh, Heschel wrote in four languages. He wrote a, a remarkable output of books. And one of his most significant books he published in Hebrew in the early 1960s. Uh, it, it's translated, uh, it was translated a few years ago by Gordon Tucker uh, um, um, under the name of Heavenly Torah as refracted through the generations. Just last year, a new edition of that book of the Hebrew original was brought out by a scholar here in uh, Israel, Dror Bondi, who went to the Heschel archives. Fun fact, the Heschel archives are kept at Duke University in North Carolina, of all places. And uh, I've spent a couple of wonderful visits there, hanging out at, uh, at Duke and uh, um, spending time with the, uh, with the material. And he pieced together a better version of that original book. And lo and behold, in that newly renewed version of the book, we find the same halachic source, the same Talmudic quote, that the 17-year-old Heschel was talking about come back into usage. He was still thinking about it decades later as a mature adult. And I'll show you this as we come to the end and then I'm ready 
I'm uh, as ready as I can ever be for any questions and comments and thoughts. So here you have a couple of places in Torah Min HaShemaim in this book, whereas we now see he's thinking about that, uh, those terms that we saw from the Talmud. Um, here he's talking about um, whether it's ever permissible to do something which is sinful because the sin is for a good reason, for a good motivation. The sages, he writes, justified the deeds of Yael and the daughters of Lot on the grounds that they sinned in order to save the people or for the sake of maintaining the world. Even though they ruled that, that one doesn't say to a person sin so that another will benefit, right? That's our expression from the Talmud. For the sake of a commandment that serves the interest of the many, we may sin. And in the, uh, uh, um, later on in the book, he quotes the Ritbai, quotes one of the halachic decisors who gives a minority opinion, which doesn't see the question of the Talmud as a rhetorical question saying, it would be absurd to expose yourself to risk for the sake of uh, saving somebody else. The Ritba, who he quotes here, is of the opinion that while the sages didn't permit saying to a person sin so that another will benefit if an individual so wishes, they may do this themselves in order that his fellow person may benefit. You don't tell somebody to sit, to expose themselves to risk for the sake of the other. But on the other hand, if that individual is motivated to take the risk, if that person is prepared to roll up their sleeves and get involved, if they are prepared to lean in to the problems that they see around them, that's okay. Heschel uh, in adult life is going back to the, the questions which were troubling him as a teenager. And now on the, having seen, having lived through Nazi Germany and having come to America and being active as he is in, uh, in the issues of civil rights and all the rest of it, he is asking the question and answering in the affirmative. There are situations in which we do, even if uh, 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 I won't instruct you to take a risk for the sake of the greater good, you may be impelled. You may have a moral uh, a sense that this is what you should be doing. And I want to suggest that Heschel thinks that's absolutely right. Only a human being, he wrote in 63, is said to be responsible. Responsibility is not something a person imputes to themselves. They are a self by virtue of their capacity for responsibility. And they would cease to be a self if they were deprived of responsibility. Having that sense of responsibility, being impelled to see whether your neighbor is about to, or whether we all are about to perpetrate sins and need to try and get involved somehow that those sins can be averted, that is, an, that is actually proof that we're sentient humans. That's not something to be avoided, it's something to be celebrated. In 1963, and this is my last source, Abraham Joshua Heschel sent a telegram to JFK. These days when I teach this source, I have to explain who JFK was, but most of the time I have to explain what a telegram was because uh, most folks don't, have any idea of that. And he sent a remarkable uh, uh, a telegram 
uh, in which he talks about issues of race in American society. Um, I've just given you a couple of lines. I've done them in capitals because that's how telegrams used to get written. And this is what he said. Police demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just a solemn declaration. The hour calls for high moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. I want to suggest to you, and that was the purpose of these last few minutes, that Heschel read this command for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity, not just from the pages of the New York Times. He read this from the pages of the Talmud, the Talmud and uh, the other foundational sources of his tradition that he'd been reading ever since he could read. And what he uh, adduced from this text was not just all of the uh, conventional, traditional, he was in many ways conventional and traditional in the way he practiced Judaism, but he also read out of these traditions an imperative that when you're walking by your neighbor's oven and you see that they're about to do wittingly or unwittingly something which will, of, will be of significant harm to that person and to the wider community, you should ask yourself, what do I need to do to lean in, even if by scraping the dough off the side of the oven, I may be uh, exposing myself to a degree of risk. So that's what I've tried to do in these minutes, follow a particular rabbinic source from its Talmudic origins all the way to uh, the United States in the 1960s. Uh, I hope it was of some interest. I'm here and would love to uh, think with you and talk with you for the next few minutes. Wonderful. Thank you, Rabbi Michael Murmur. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful presentation. And uh, I see we already have our first question here from Agalea in Louisiana. Hi. Greetings from Louisiana. Hi. Okay, so I don't mean to be really obnoxious to bring up neoplatonic thought or anything like that, but it's fair game at this point. Okay, so we're talking about are humans able, if we're not going to step up to the plate and actually, you know, correct, you know, like correct wrongdoing and stuff like that. It reminded me, it took me back to reading from Giovanni Pico della Mirandola way, way back in the, I do believe it was the 14th century, and how he spoke of um, humans share with God um, this um, subjectivity. He called it quis, Latin word for you are someone. And so, and it's something unique to humans. No one else has this in the universe, okay? Now we can talk all day about, you know, animals and dolphins being able to figure out stuff and everything like that though. But remember he's writing back in the 14th century, so 15th century, 14th century, I don't know, anyway. But long story short though, um, the way that he framed it was that humans, because made in the image and likeness of God and also quoting Plato the whole time, was, Heschel ever like did he go into long passages about well because humans are made in the image of likeness of God and we do share this status with God that you know there's also a moral imperative that we share with God that God imparted to humans that if we're not stepping up to it then we're kind of denying our own image does that make sense so the short the short answer to that great question is yes he does mm -hmm. um usually when people say to me I don't mean to be obnoxious the next line is not usually, but I'm going to quote some Neoplatonistic thought. That's not usually what comes next. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm not used to that. Uh, 
But the short answer to your great question is Heschel writes explicitly about this. He gives a speech in Stanford in 1963, gets published in 64 in a book called Who is Man, where he thinks at great length, he discusses in really interesting ways, what it is, what is it that gives humanity its, its particular status? Um, um, it's connected to his notion of the image of God. Um, there is nothing that is created in the image of God, except uh, uh, he would argue an aspect of humanity. When it comes to what makes a human being human, it is indeed that's, uh, he writes in that book, uh, you know, he plays with Descartes' idea, I think, therefore I am. And Heschel says, I am commanded, therefore I am. To be a human being is to sense a, a, a feeling of being commanded to act in the world, okay? And he does talk, that's on the human side, that to be a human is, is uniquely to be privileged to be in the image of God. And as far as the divine side is concerned, on God's side, Heschel coins an expression that he calls divine pathos. He is against uh, abstract, actually Aristotelian ideas. If you've, if you've given Plato, I think it's only fair that I should... Uh, <laughs> I should retaliate, okay? Um, so uh, Aristotle and other uh, philosophers have a kind of idea of an abstracted God who is completely impassable, has, is not subject to any kind of influence by human, uh, 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 human affairs. Heschel rejects. Heschel says, our God is not the most unmoved mover, but our God is the most moved mover. God is indeed susceptible both to uh, uh, um, you know despair and disgust, but also to our our best prayers and actions. Um, he he suggests a picture of a human divine relationship, which is indeed interactive and is, by the way, quite influenced by certain Neoplatonist and other ideas. So I be the short, that, that was the long answer, but the short answer was yes. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he read Pico because he Pico wrote this long rambling treatise about why you know humans are great and everything. He said man is great and everything, but it's a choice between good. Well, I'm impressed that I actually followed that because I never heard of Pico. So yay. Um, but um what struck me was that there are rules and there are principles, and the Rules are supposed to help you follow the principles, but the principles are more important. So it, to me, it depends on why you're baking the bread. Nothing's more important than life and health and, and dignity, you know, helping people with their dignity. So if you're baking the bread because you forgot to bake the bread and people are going to starve all day Saturday, have nothing to eat because you forgot to bake the bread, then you need to bake the bread. Um and someone can't come along and say, nope, you're sinning. I'm going to stop you from baking the bread. If you say, you know, I would love a piece of nice hot bread and I forgot to put it in, then maybe someone has the right. But the reason you're doing it to me is what's critical. What's the principle behind it? Just like in Les Miserables, it's wrong to steal. But if you're stealing the loaf of bread to save your niece's life, then go ahead and steal the loaf of bread. So I think that's kind of where I fall on it. Yes, I mean, I, I think it's a really a, a interesting point and it's worth uh, m mentioning that Heschel's position, um, 
there's been uh, lots of references. Uh, uh, Heschel has been read in a somewhat different way since 9-11. Because Heschel is all about getting involved for social improvement, okay, in the name of uh, uh, religion. And there's quite a lot of people who say, well, might, we might be better off altogether if religiously minded people would leave their religion at the door, would separate out their religious commitments. Because once you start doing things uh, because you believe God has told you to do them, we now we know, and we've known for a long time, but people can do the most appalling things motivated by, uh, uh, by that belief. Heschel would, I think, argue, he would have countered by saying, no, um, there is a difference between some sort of wild delusion where God tells you to start blowing people up on the one hand and a, a, a revelatory sense that we've, we've been put on this earth in order to try and make life more just, more secure, more uh, inclusive, more involving and all the rest of it. Um, the point that I heard you make, Joan, which is a good one, is that in the scenario I gave you before where I'm walking past Shmuley's backyard and, and interfere with his baking activities, actually the appropriate thing to do would be to try out of curiosity and care to understand what the circumstances are. You, you, um, I will tell you that in the medieval discussions, the Tosafot and elsewhere, of this Talmudic thing that I brought, some of the questions you've raised are indeed raised. Is the bread being baked because there's been a, a disastrous oversight and people will starve this Shabbat because uh, uh, there's nothing to eat? Or is there, or is this person simply being forgetful or contrary? Or what, what, what are the circumstances in which the bread's being baked? So I, I think that you're asking about the specifics is a really good point. I do want to say to, is it Juan, is that your name? That you, uh, you've given me great pleasure by wearing my team's football shirt in the course of this, uh, soccer shirt in the course of this. That's, that's given me a good, a good feeling. Uh, the Yids, how Rabbi. Did you, how did you know? That's fantastic. <laughs> Anything else from anyone else? Joan, is your oh, hand look. still raised from before? Hi, yeah, no, um, I don't mean to dominate the conversation, but something he said reminded me of something because I'm involved in something here in Texas called the Interfaith Welcome Coalition. And it's all about welcoming people at the border. And I don't want to get into a big political conversation, but you talked about people doing the right thing for religious reasons. There are maybe 50 people in the group and I'm one of two Jewish people, but everyone there is motivated because they want to make the world better. So I think it's a good modern example of using religion in a good way, because we talked about examples of using religion in a bad way. Suzanne, hello, Suzanne. It's been a while. I can't, I can't hear you. Sorry, had my microphone off. Um, no, I was just thinking, nice to see you and wonderful presentation is what I started to say. But I was thinking about um, a, uh, a talk that was given by Rabbi Harold Schulweis um, who was talking about the, you know, so-called prohibition against gay, you know, relationships in Leviticus 18, and basically saying, you know, we were endowed with a brain and reasoning, and we can look at something that seems wrong and override it by our moral understanding. 
Um, in other words, um, you know, that what, what, what Glea was talking about before, you know, I mean, we, we are endowed with this ability to reason and with a conscience. So sometimes we need to use that, even if it means, you know, supposedly transgressing some law that we think we understand, right? Because it couldn't be that. It couldn't be that if, if you know, it supposedly comes from God. So maybe one has to say, well, killing a bunch of people by ramming your airplane into a building doesn't seem like the moral thing to do, even if you think God told you to do it. Look at the Akeda. It was wrong to follow that, you know, injunction. And Abraham had to learn that. Yes, and, and what you're saying is actually borne out. There are echoes of this within, indeed, within the system of Jewish law and Jewish philosophy itself. I'm thinking of a verse from the book of Psalms, which turned into a sort of principle uh, Heschel writes about this uh, in, in his Hebrew book, Et Sot which means, if, I wish I could tell you what it means, it's a bit difficult to know, it means 17 different things, but it's become, trans, it's become uh, interpreted to mean, it is time to act for God, even if that acting means a, an imperative to break some of God's own uh, commandments or laws. Now, we, as we can appreciate, this is highly volatile and dangerous stuff. If you have a get out of jail free card, which means you can break whatever rules, be they religious or, or uh, you know, or local legislation, because uh, you're working for a higher power, that can lead to all manner of terrible uh, misdeeds. But Heschel will fight vigorously for that, uh, for that right, okay? That one should not just be, um, acquiescent to whatever the norms of society are. If you've lived in a society where the norms go completely haywire, you have to reserve the right to uh, apply your own judgment about those norms. And if needs be, stick, a, stick your pinky into the uh, oven and risk getting singed in order to make something better. All right, can okay. I just jump in with Something really quickly. Okay. So speaking of, um, you know, like take for instance, gay rights and everything and the injunctions against um, homosexual, you know, relations and stuff like that, you know, in Leviticus and everything though. All right. So one time, okay, this is like actually based on a true story. Sorry, but you know, there was, there were passages like that. And then the Haftarah had Isaiah and the first words that actually jumped out of me in that Haftarah were my lover. And he goes on to talk about God as a male character. And I just said, okay, wait a minute, hold up, hold up. Because they were talking about, do you argue against, you know, people who are using, you know, the Torah, the Bible, you know, all of these, like you can't be gay and everything. And I said, he just referred to God as his lover. Now, this is Isaiah, who is male, and he referred to God as his lover, and he describes God as a male character. And then everyone looked at me like I was insane. So when it comes to, I used to hate religion and everything like that, though, but when it comes to, do you use religion as an excuse to hurt other people, like, you know, terrorists and stuff like that? Um, what I find is that it's a very, um, it's a very narrow idea of what the religion actually wants. And now some people want it's cut dry. This is just what you have to do. It's in the book. You have to say it this way. You have to do this. However, though, there are also in these religions a lot of examples when it's not, you know, so set in stone. So really, I think it comes down to are you willing to actually flex your mind or do you just really need 
everything to be just, no, it says this and we can't, we can't move from this. Even if there are 10 passages later on that kind of say, I don't know, it's not necessarily set in stone. We have to actually stick to this. Are you willing to, you know, have that flexibility? Uh, you know, as you're talking, as you're saying this, I learned something. I know we're coming up to our hard stop, but I will. I, I heard a talk years ago by a musicologist mm -hmm. talking about the music of George Gershwin. Mm -hmm. he, he said something interesting that the tune to it ain't necessarily so is most likely taken from Birkota Torah, the blessings that we uh, recite. So it ain't necessarily so, is in fact. Uh, and what I like about this is that the, the idea for uh, um, suggesting an alternative reading or alternative understanding is uh, there present at the moment in which the Torah uh, is encountered. Heschel certainly was himself very interested. Uh, he, As I said to you, he was a pretty conventional person in all sorts of ways connected to his lifestyle, but a deeply unorthodox and unconventional person in his ideas and in, and in the scope of his imagination. So what I tried to do uh, in this hour was show you a through line from uh, Babylonia a long time ago to uh, our more recent history. Thank you so much, Rabbi Michael Marmer. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Rodef Shalom, for your partnership today. Um, wishing everyone who celebrates a happy Thanksgiving and hope you will join us next Wednesday at 10 Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time with Dr. Schnitzer, the world in which God placed humans. Wishing everyone a beautiful day and a Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.